Attention all mortals, veterans and civilians alike. It's time to buckle up and get ready for a wild ride because you just tuned in to the Swandingo Files. Your host, Steven Swanson, is here to help you navigate the crazy world of transitioning from military life to civilian life. And let me tell you, it's a bumpy road, but with a little bit of humor and a lot of determination, we can make it through together. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Swandingo Files. Today I have a special guest, Griff, who's a fellow veteran. He's done some pretty badass stuff, and now he wants to hit you with flip-flops, apparently. I don't know what the hell's going on here. That's fucking weird. Twice so how's it going, Griff? It's Friday, yeah. <laughs> not, enough, not enough cough in my system. So, But uh, today we're going to go over uh, why you joined, uh, what you did while you're in. I want to hear some pretty crazy stuff, of course. And then uh, why you don't wear flip-flops in combat? Let's do it. <laughs> so we can lead us off with why did you join? Uh, you know, I uh, I was a military brat, and my first memories were my dad was an instructor at West Point. And I remember cadets coming over to the house when I was three years old. It's some of my very first memories. And just l- looking at how my parents, you know, respected those young kids. They go, oh, I'd, I'd want to do that sometime in my life. I think that would be cool. I'm going to be like those guys. And so just those little things when you're younger. And then I grew up in the 80s watching the A-Team and G.I. Joe. And they had Commando with Schwarzenegger. And, Ram- and we had the apex of 80s machismo, right? The drive guys that wanted to be in the military. Uh, so that just never ended as I was going, um, as growing up. And then when you get into high school, you, you life starts really coming at you fast. And yeah, I don't come from a, a wealthy family or anything. So it was either get a scholarship or get a job or join the military. So I did all three and I applied to West Point. I got into the academy in 2000 uh, to graduate in the class of 2001. And uh, during my time there, it was it was really interesting. I always thought I wanted to be a pilot. You know, it's sexy. <laughs> I want to be a helicopter pilot. And I broke my shoulder really bad my my plebe year, my freshman year at West Point. And although like I never really had a doctor tell me I couldn't fly with the injury, and I probably could have, I just resolved in my mind that oh, this is probably going to keep me from you being a pilot. So I, you know, just started looking at other options that I really didn't know what to do, but I'm really good at math. Like I can do math in my head and I love physics. And I had a, you know, when you're there at the academy, they keep you, there's, I don't know, 36 companies now. And each company has a U.S. Army officer and a U.S. Army NCO as your TAC NCOs. They kind of just watch you and make sure you're not getting in trouble and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. My NCO was a guy named Inman. And he was a master sergeant out of the Ranger Regiment. So he, you know, when you're at the academy, they don't know much about the Ranger Regiment, except they got the that weird looking scroll on their shoulder and a Ranger tab. And, you know, back then when you're in the academy, everybody's, ooh, Ranger, you're Ranger qualified. And uh he just took me under his wing and he says, all right, you're already jump qualified because I went to airborne school uh during one of my years. And then they said, and they, what they do is they take you and they put you in an active duty military unit as a platoon leader for a summer to just so that way you can know what it's like to be a lieutenant. Oh, I know, I know very well. I, I did 14 and a half years in uh, 87 and all that. So I remember seeing uh, your, your little uh, ins- 
insignia on and it's like pretend like he had authority. It's like, no, you don't. No, go away. No. But it was yeah. fun though, watching him and get give us a little bit of grief and everything and what the military was going to be like. Yeah, so when we got down there, uh, one of my good buddies, John, he got assigned to the same battalion as I did. As It was Bravo 2nd of the 319th Field Artillery Unit, 82nd Airborne. And, and you know, John's a shorter guy, but you, you shouldn't underestimate him. He's a physical stud. And I'm just me. And we show up and all of these other lieutenants, like I didn't, like I knew I didn't have any authority with the NCOs. I was there to learn, but the other lieutenants were from VMI and the Citadel and they just hated us. So we made it our entire mission every day to just put them into the ground during PT. Every which way we could, we wanted to embarrass these lieutenants as cadets. And we had a, we had a really good time of it that summer. And in the process, I really fell in love with jumping out of airplanes and blowing stuff up. And I said, okay, I'm going to be an airborne artillery guy. That's what I'm going to do. And then I just uh, selected artillery at uh, West Point when you get your branch selection during your senior year. And then I selected Fort Lewis because I wanted to be close to a ranger battalion. And one of my mentors, he's a old Vietnam war guy, um, Colonel Babbitt. And uh, he should have won the Medal of Honor, but he's got two silver stars instead from Vietnam. And he won him before he went to West Point. So, yeah, just imagine that. So he got his two silver stars before being a freshman at West Point during the 60s. Can you imagine how hard of a time that was on him? Wow. Yeah. Right? yeah. And he said, he says, like, I've traveled all over the world, and the best station, duty station, is Fort Lewis, Washington. So I said, okay, there's a Ranger Battalion there. There's a uh, Green Beret, uh, ODA, so 10th Group is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just going to go there and be as close to the pin as possible. And he says it's a good place to live. And I moved here and loved it. I'm a big hunter, fisherman, hiker, skier, mountain biker. And this had everything I wanted to do uh, outside of the military. So I, I got here and I ended up at, you know, the strikers, the eight build vehicles. Did you ever have those? I've never been in one. I did see them. Uh, I was only mechanized ever as a scout while I was in South Korea. That's the only time. They, and they don't get any money in South Korea. So I was always a light scout. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you, if you were a scout, you saw the, the non-tab infantry lieutenants and how they were. Oh, training. yeah. Oh, yeah. So as an artillery guy, you got to fight for your slot to ranger school. It's really hard to get. And so I, I did my time at Fort Sill doing the pre-ranger training, doing all of that. We whittled down from 70-something guys to six who were actually able to go. Four of us graduated. And when we got here at Fort Lewis and assigned to our artillery unit, your first job is to go to be a fire support officer in an infantry battalion. So you run around with the infantry guys on the radio calling for the artillery. And Colonel Chapa was a former regimental officer who would handpick all the ranger-tabbed artillery lieutenants out of their artillery battalion and I ended up uh, being one of the best decisions I ever did. He going to ranger school, he picked me up and I, I walked into his office and I said, sir, I'll do whatever you need me to do for the next nine months. But as soon as I can, I'm dropping my packet to the ranger regiment. And he, he looked at me and he smiled. He's like, all right, you're going to be fine here. And we had the first four strikers in the army. The very first four, we had the full general dynamics team. And so we were the poster children 
for the striker as it rolled out for the U.S. Army. So we got to fly all over in C-17s, do all the combat landings, and it was a really interesting experience, but we never, we missed Afghanistan, we missed the invasion of Iraq. So the unit was watching all of these other units go as we were testing this platform. And it was sad at the time because I really enjoyed the unit I was in, but it was time to go to the regiment. So I, I put in my packet and uh, went through the, the, they call it rope ranger orientation mm-hmm. program. So it's a two week selection process at Fort Bragg. And the craziest part about that is the psychological evaluation. Literally, I didn't know there was days. one. Yeah, for two days, you sit and you fill out bubbles and IQ tests. That's all you do. You do PT in the morning, you do your physical selection, you sit down in a room and you answer circle bubbles on a test for two days. And then you go through the rest of your selection process, and then right before you go into your interview, they bring you into a teeny tiny little room. I mean, the room's probably five feet wide by eight feet deep. It, you might be able to fit a sheet of plywood in there, maybe. And there's two chairs and a tiny table, and the regimental uh, officer, the psych officer, sits down with his manila envelope, and he proceeds to tell me things about myself I really wouldn't learn about myself for the next 10 years. And he literally looks into your soul and pokes at your heart in the middle of that interview. And you think you're good. You think you're God's gift to the military, everything. And this guy, he made you feel like an absolute piece of crap. And then he goes, okay, good luck at your interview. Then he gets up and he walks out and he walks into the board and he tells them psychologically how to screw with you in the interview. Is this so something you, you feel dejected already, and then you step out of this room, you wait in the hallway, and they're like, "Okay, time to go in." As the psychs walking out, it was, it was fun, um, to say the least. Is and that something that I got everybody... to? Uh, fortunately, you know, they they allowed me in, and I got the Alpha Company Second Ranger Battalion here in Fort Lewis, Washington, and that was uh, it was an eye opening experience because the the lieutenant is the dumbest one there, always, and you just accept it. You know nothing. And I, I had just arrived at the unit as they were unpacking their bags from the invasion of Iraq. So all, everybody's walking around with their combat scrolls. And I'm this new artillery cherry lieutenant without a combat patch on. It was it was entertaining. We'll just say that. Yeah, but I, I remember coming back 2003-04 and seeing the new privates, lieutenants, everything with no patch on. It, it was kind of weird because we all had ours already and. Yeah, it was a different experience seeing no patches on the right side, correct? Yeah. It's been a little bit since I've been in uniform, so I gotta remember sometimes. But Yeah, little so. little did we know that we'd all get the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think at that point anybody really realized how long we were gonna be in Iraq and of course Afghanistan and all that fun stuff. So so how many times did you actually how how long were you a ranger then? Uh I was a ranger from July of 2003 to the summer of 06, kind of in and out of there. I'm sorry, summer of 05, I should say. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of years, and that's about as long as they give you for an artillery officer being there because they, they want you to go back to an artillery unit or they, they want you to do something else afterwards and you can't stay there forever. But I, I drug it out as long as I could because I knew that I wasn't going to stay in the Army. So I, I tried to stay there as long as I possibly could. How long did you end up staying in the Army then? Uh, I got out uh, about nine months after getting out of the regiment. And uh, what was your transition period like? What, uh, it, how long did you pre- – well, what, what rank did you make it to, actually? So I was a captain. Okay. So I made I made a junior captain before you go to the captain's career course. 
And uh, I did three deployments to Afghanistan and then one to Iraq, and it was back to back to back to back, you know, for years. And then when we when we were home, we weren't really home because we were training. So it was we would easily be away from the house 300 days a year. And in the process of doing that, I got married and had my first child. He was born when I was on my third deployment to Afghanistan. So I missed her birth and then came home. We immediately conceived Amelia, our second one. And then, you know, my, uh, my wife was pregnant the entire time I was gone. I made it home just in time for her birth. And my brother looked at me and he goes, you're never allowed to do that again. You can't get her pregnant and leave because I missed both pregnancies. And I guess it was a little bit of a handful, but yeah. when uh, someone... I don't know if you really missed anything during the pregnancy. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, I've missed, uh, <laughs> I, I've missed a couple. Literally, I was in Afghanistan, my my fourth deployment, uh, the second one to Afghanistan. And we had the NWR and all that stuff by that time, the USO, all that great stuff. But it went down that night. My wife was going to the labor. I wasn't taking a nap, thinking, you know, it'll be back up. Two hours later, and, you know, she just went into labor. I, I'm good. I can take a two-hour nap. Get up. Uh, somebody comes running in my room. She's like, your wife just gave birth. I was like, what, she in labor for, what, three hours? That's it? So uh, I completely missed because we are going to try to scream it and everything, and it didn't happen. But, you know, it is what it is, but I don't, I don't regret it, but I just kind of sucks, and I know what it feels like not to be there when a kid's born. You remember those old Sony Handycams? Yep. With the little cassette you put in the side? Mm -hmm. And remember how it had that night vision switch on it where you could record at night? Mm Mm-hmm. So when my first daughter was being born, my sister-in-law had the camera. And she's like, oh, the color looks weird and didn't think to check anything. It didn't look at it. And she recorded the whole thing in night vision, which was kind of funny at the same time in a a broad daylight room. So it was really grainy and hard to see. But that's funny. Born under night vision, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard a story like that one before, but we're going to have to remember that. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but my transition period was interesting because when you, when you're in the regiment, you really don't think about anything else other than being in the regiment. You just, yeah. you just, you, you don't have, you really don't have any time to other think about like your job, staying in shape and your job, right? You can get a little bit of home time when you can. Um, and I knew, like, they wanted me to stay and be the rear detachment commander because they were deploying again, and I had to decline because I knew that I had to get my family ready. But I had nowhere to go, right? I was stuck if I didn't have orders going anywhere else. So I'm a pretty resourceful guy. So I just got in got in my truck with the, uh, the post. Remember the old telephone directories they had? <laughs> yeah, yep. and they, it just said field artillery, and I went and I drove around to every unit. It's like which one looks like they do the least amount of work, right? Who, you know, which parking lot is empty by two or three in the afternoon? Mm-hmm. And I found the I Corps artillery um, detachment for I Corps that was on Fort Lewis, and their whole thing was Corps level artillery, but it was a National Guard unit out of Utah that played this role. So they had active duty guys serving in that role. And I just walked in the building and, you know, I I looked to see where the commanding officer's door was. And I just, you know, I was in my spits and starches, had my tan beret, nice boots clean. And I just walked in and I, I heard something in his office. So I just kind of knocked on his door and poked my head in and said, Hey sir, how's it going? 
It's like, you don't know me, but I'm an artillery you know, captain down the road here. I'm getting out. Would you happen to have a spot for me here? He says, it's just weird series of coincidence, right? If you don't ask, you don't get. And he goes, oddly enough, we need a fire support officer for this training exercise. We're running in Japan in January. If you do that for me, I will, I'll, I'll get you orders here. And I said, done. Shook hands on it. And three days later, I had orders from my Corps artillery over to second ranger battalion. And they, they took me under their wing as a national guard unit and they gave me the freedom I needed to get my life in order, i.e. pack my house up, sell my home, you know, get rid of everything that I needed to, to actually move and figure out where I'm going to live for the rest of my life. Um, and that was a really great opportunity they provided me there. Yeah. That's, uh, I don't think I've ever heard of an officer or anybody being able to do that. That's, I don't know, maybe it's a tambour. Eh? I don't know. If, if you don't ask, you don't get. The military works that way too. Everybody wants to be a hero. Everybody wants to be nice. If you're not a jerk to people and you make them feel like they helped you, that most people are willing to do that. Yeah. No, I've noticed that, especially here lately, just doing this podcast and everything. Everybody's so willing to jump, jump the gun and help you out and get on or, Hey, if you need anything, do this. It's just the veteran mindset. It's, it, it's, I don't know. I think I was slow talking with you guys and listening to you, and you're the first one I actually went to ranger school and was a ranger. So it's nice to see. I did have a platoon sergeant that was a ranger back in the 90s at one point, and was he, he was weird? He was. He was uh, 93 to something. He was a ranger. as a, I think he made it up to E5, and he was under McChrystal, though, when he was in charge, and uh yeah, then they started nixing a bunch of ranger positions, so we had to go back to being infantry. But yeah, he was a good dude, really smart though, especially tactically. He was very, very smart about it. Yeah. Yeah, they but, do a good job in the regiment. Clearly, better than they do in the active army. Yeah. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, the the transition process is scary for everybody. I would have to say it's it's. You know, it doesn't matter if you're E2, E3 getting out versus 07. I would have to say the officers are probably more scared than everybody else. It's really? a little dirty little secret, especially the senior officers. They're freaked out getting out of the military. Why, why would that be? Say, oh, you know, just imagine, right? You're like, I'm a big fan of company grade officers. You know, a lot of, unless you guys ask me why company grade officers, the good ones don't stay. And, a lot of us really don't even have to ask that, answer that question. You know why. It, it just is the environment, you know, the culture, like everything else. It's the young guys, they, they did their part. They wanted to help out. They wanted to be with the troops. And when they can't do that anymore and it's all politics, a lot of guys lose their flavor. And unfortunately, when that happens over time, the big guys making the decisions really don't have that. I wouldn't say they don't have the love, but. They don't, I don't think they have that mindset first. Um, but what they do have is they have a bunch of staff. They have a whole bunch of people who are used to prepping everything for them, getting their briefs, doing all that stuff. And although it's work, you have a lot of people working for you. And when those 05s, 06s have to get out and they're behind a desk in a cubicle somewhere working for somebody else, it's scary for them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. I, I guess going from where, where you're, yeah, everybody does everything for you to not have that no more. I don't know. I always thought being enlisted would be scary because you don't, lower enlisted, you really don't have any skills yet. So for discipline, and even today, that's kind of 
iffy, I'd say. But, but even me coming out as an E7, I mean, you know, I always told everybody, hey, make sure you, you get what you can while you're in. And when I was in, it's really, I got some college, but I did air assault, rappel master, fries and spies, all that. But it's like none of that transferred to the outside. It's like, why did I waste my time doing all that stuff? Yeah, it looked cool while I was in, but never thought about the outside world, I guess you can say. Yeah, the, the one thing I tell people when they, before they get out, especially the younger guys, I say, get a job on your supply shop. Learn how to buy stuff. Selling to the government is an evergreen job, and if you know how the process works, you can get out and somebody will hire you to sell some stuff to the military because you know how it works. That's and actually if, a really good point. Yeah, I, I really I tell all the guys, like, learn how to buy stuff. Just learn the process. It's boring as hell. It's complicated. It's built on an old Windows 95 system. But learn it because it's important, and it will provide you a level of security. It's a job that you can do until you're 70 if you if you follow the process and just stick with it. I think my wife must take a class, but she buys all the stuff using my money instead of the government's money. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody needs one of those. Mm. <laughs> that was that, you know, I, transition is is it's going to be really good if you have opportunity to. There are so many programs that are out there. If you have your GI Bill, leverage every bit of it, like every single bit of it. Go to a trade school, do whatever, and then when that runs out, go use your Voc Rehab. They're two different programs and two e- like equal or greater benefits. So if you needed to, you could be in school for eight years and, you know, come out of there. But that's a benefit that you earn by doing the job that you did. Makes sense. So, uh, so what's with the, what got you into, or okay, so what did you do first when you got out, I guess, after your transition period? What did you do first? I took the first job offer to me, and I was a construction manager for a major home builder. And that was it was it was interesting because there was a whole bunch of this one recruiter would always hire you know e four to e sixes and hire lieutenants or cap junior officers only and that's all this recruiter did he just went around the country to military bases and hired for a major home building company it was Centex, so central Texas the home builder company, the big one and well at least they were big at the time and he put us in there against our peers from the other recruiters and we outshined everybody. We showed up on time. We knew how to work with rough trades. We maintained a schedule. We made sure it looked clean all the time. And pretty soon this cohort of veterans that got hired in, we were put in the, you know, the biggest, highest producing neighborhoods with less than a year of experience just because we were getting the job done. And then the housing market crashed. Unfortunate. Unfortunate timing, I guess you can say. Yeah, but I mean, I think veterans today need to be really concerned about the same thing right now. If you're in the military and getting out, it is a dicey economic environment out there. It's a, it's a, it's a major point of consideration as you're considering your transition. Think about well, the economic environment that you're going into. Yeah, um, that is that is very true. And I know times are a little bit tough right now, but I think with a little bit of grit and all these programs, have a little bit of a leg up because, I mean, like you said, Votech schools are, I think, should be looked at first because what, 80% of jobs don't require any kind of college degree. So, you know, why would you waste time going to college unless you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, you know, some stuff like that? Votech schools, you can insulate, what, six months to 18 months, you can be certified in something, making six figures, and a year a year or two later. So, so it's interesting thing. 
Yeah. So my, you know, as we've discussed, we have kids. And so my kids are considering college. And my youngest daughter has a friend that just turned 18 and was working a job at a, up here, I don't know what you call them, Jiffy Lube. We call them Oil Can Henry's up here. And yeah, she was out here. six months in a oil change shop. Walks down to Toyota or calls up for and gets an interview. They immediately hire her because she has work experience. Sixty plus thousand dollar a year job, and they're willing to send her to Wyoming Technical Institute, which is the school. school, which is a great school. I was going to go there if I didn't go to West Point, and she gets to go there for free. I was like, wait a second, you can Toyota will hire you to do that. Why aren't why isn't every Army mechanic getting out applying to Toyota or companies like this that have those benefits? Because you'll maintain your GI Bill, use Toyota to pay for that cert, and then use your GI Bill for something else. Like leverage the benefits that you have available to you. That is awesome. Is she in WildTech now, or uh... Uh, she's working at Toyota right now, and I think she's waiting for the next cycle to get to get into Wyoming Tech. But that I mean, awesome. there are just so many great things that are open and out there for people if you ask. Right? That's ask, all you yes. got to do is ask. And I, I got on there earlier and I talked about it. You just got to ask. That is true. So how did you get into flip-flops? Uh, so after I lost my job in the military, or not in the military, in the – you can cut that out. So after I lost my job in home building, I faked my way into a job for a company called Remote Medical International. So as a Ranger platoon leader, the headquarters platoon leader, I was in charge of the medics and making sure the medics got to all their training. And I spent a lot of time with medics, so I learned a lot of emergency medical care processes and procedures. And I figured, you know, if if one of my guys is going to get hurt, I always need to be able to lend a helping hand, right? I need to be able to know what's going on, know what the medics are doing so I can get ahead of them so we can get the casualties out of there as fast as possible. Um, and I applied for a job as the military sales manager for this company called Remote Medical International, in which we were selling doctors, pharmaceuticals, and clinics to government contractors that were working overseas. And this is right as the Obama administration happened and the contracting boom took off. Mm-hmm. So I was flying all over the world, you know, setting up these clinics in Africa, you know, Afghanistan, you know, other parts of the Middle East, Southeast Asia. And But when I went there, I was just griff. I didn't have a platoon of dudes and machine guns. I had a backpack, some cash, and a smile, and I had to get places that I that I needed to do for my job. And what I learned was that areas that are flourishing with small business don't have security issues. They just don't. If you look where all the bombings are at, they're around military compounds, embassies, and reporters. Where they don't happen is on the small business streets. And, and I just kept seeing that everywhere I went and I go, well, why aren't, aren't we as a country doing more of this? It would take us less investment to fuel their businesses and their business economy than we are spending on the war where we could create jobs and, you know, prevent the the root cause of why we're having all of this terrorism. It, it was happening for years everywhere I went. Same thing. And then one day I walked into a combat boot factory and I saw. 300 people, 300 Afghans working, and I thought it was really cool. And the factory manager told me they were all going to go out of work when the war ended. And I said, that's bull crap. And I looked down on a table, and there's this flip-flop thong punched through a combat boot sole. And I was like, eh, Americans would buy that shit. And I uh, called my ranger buddy, Donald Lee, and I registered combatflipflops.com on GoDaddy for $3.99. And that's how we started. So now we, we make products in conflict or post-conflict areas. 
And then up until August of 21, when we were able to, we used our profits for every product sold. We put a girl in school for a day in Afghanistan. And we put over a thousand girls in school for a year, uh, right before the, you know, the withdrawal happened, which was unfortunate. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty cool to hear. I didn't, I didn't know that's what you guys were doing. I thought you were just making, but wow. So yeah, we, we make, we make textiles in Afghanistan now. Uh, we make our flip-flops in Bogota, Colombia. We make jewelry out of landmines in Laos. We print all our shirts and hats and everything else here in the U.S. And, you know, we're just a small veteran on business trying to make good products and do right by people. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, how can people find you? Or get a hold everything of you? is at Combat Flip Flops. All Everything is at Combat Flip Flops. If you want to connect with me personally, I'm combatflipflops.griff, uh, G-R-I-F-F. And if I'm not shadow banned, uh, you got to type out the whole thing on there to make sure you get my name. But it's combatflipflops.griff, G-R-I-F-F. And why are you getting sh- shadow banned? Uh, my opinions don't really go with the narrative sometimes. And, uh, you know, they've, they've been flagging me for Kermit the Frog memes and a few other things. So it's pretty stupid, but it, everybody's got to play the game these days. <laughs> well, Kermit the Frog memes. All right. Got it. Uh, so it's nice Literally to have Kermit the Frog memes. I'll remember that and I'll be looking out for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So it's nice having you on, Griff, and I'm glad you're doing such great things. And uh, it's nice to talk to a fellow combat veteran. And uh, it's nice to see you're doing so well and you're giving back so much. I mean, it's good to hear that. And do you have any words of wisdom to veterans getting out today? Hey, just be patient. The old mantra, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, is a real thing. Like, take it easy, be considerate research any benefit that might be available to you and leverage every bit of it because you deserve it. I appreciate that. And uh, I think people need to hear that a little bit more often, honestly, but it's nice having you on Sundingo files today. And this wraps up this episode with Griff. Just watch out for Kermit. Well, folks, that's all we have for today's episode of the Swandingo Files. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with your host, Steven Swanson, as much as he enjoys recording it. Remember, transitioning from military life to civilian life is tough. But with a little bit of grit, a dash of humor, and a lot of determination, you can overcome any obstacle. So until next time, keep on trucking, and keep Swandingoing.